Go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 13. I'm going to try to be as time efficient as possible. John 13. Um, and if we go ahead and look first in verse 17, it says this, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So let's, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, I want to thank you so much for what we just heard. Father, I pray that we would all be very careful about our, about our walk with you, Lord. And um, God, just please convict us. Uh, please take away all presumption and all ideas that, <clears throat> that we have arrived or that we are uh, any less sinful than we've ever been, God. Dad, please just lay us bare and show us the things that we do that you still hate and the things that we don't do that you commanded you command us to do and deserve that we do. Show us the selfishness in ourselves and the, the idolatry of self-absorption and, and all these things, Lord. I ask that you would just please, con- like I said, convict us and that you would lead us to repentance, Lord. We love you. We want to thank you for taking care for us and for teaching us the way that we should live because without you we couldn't figure it out, Lord. Give us grace to receive what you tell us tonight and to, uh, to be the people who not only hear your word but do your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I will say, Tony was preaching. I was sitting there thinking, man, i got to follow that. That's, that was intense. And it should be. Um, and just as intense as what we're about to talk about, maybe it'll seem like a different flavor, but it's, it's of the same essence. Um, tonight I want to approach our discussion kind of in reverse. So um, we're going to start with the motivation for doing what our Lord commands us to do. It's kind of like if you ever worked a math problem, it's kind of like you get the answer first. You get what's on the other side of the equal sign and then you have to backtrack and figure out, okay, how did I get there? That's what we're going to do uh, tonight. And the answer or the result that we're hoping for and we hope to arrive at is uh, to be blessed. That's what I think we probably all want to land on is being blessed. I've never asked the question, anybody not want to be blessed and anybody ever raise their hand and say, yes, I, do, I despise being blessed. I don't want to be blessed. Hate that blessing stuff. You know, I've had people that said bless his heart and I didn't like that situation, Jane. But you know, to actually be blessed, I don't think any of us would re- reject that. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, the word in the Greek is, of course, makarios, and it means being fortunate or being well-off or being happy. So, you know, sometimes we'll take that word and we'll uh, institute in our English translations sometimes joy or gladness or things like that, but the understanding is still the same across the board. It means that you're well-off, things are good for you, and you are actually happy with the situation. Doesn't mean that what Jesus is saying means that we're always going to be walking around just grinning, you know, like my grandpa used to say, like a mule eating briars or something like that. Just, Stephen's the only one that got that. But, of course, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we're always walking around just extremely, totally joyful over every single little nuance of our lives. But it means that over the grand scope of our lives, there is an, abound, an abiding and abounding residing joy within us. Um, so that's where we want to end up. Um, and the problem here is that all of us uh, 
are in a situation where we know that blessed is the answer we want to arrive at, we just don't understand how to work the problem. You know, the, the, the issue is that every single one of us, we're like the kid that shows up in uh, an advanced math class and we're not advanced math students yet. And the teacher's sitting there talking about some big, humongous, high-level problem. We don't have a clue how to work it. We're doomed to do what? Work it wrong over and over and over and do what, Miss Pansy? Fail. That's exactly right. Fail. We're going to miss the answer. And here's the problem with our lives, guys. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. Here's the problem. If we're talking about working the problem out, the individual problem or the individual situation, the individual scenario out, and ending up being blessed at the end of every one of those if we work it right. Well, if we work the problem wrong over and over and over and over and over, that means that when you look back at your life, you've got nothing but a string of wrong problems where you missed being blessed, where you should have been blessed, right? So at the end of the class of life, so to speak, I guess, to stay with our situation here, you end up failing at being blessed. You did not have a joyful life. You did not have God's best for your life. You ended up missing all the right answers because you just continued to work the problem wrong over and over and over. And because we're all doomed to work it wrong our entire lives, we need the same thing everybody needs that enters that class. What do you need? You need a good teacher, don't you, Kate? You need a good teacher. Thankfully, the words of Jesus here are always true when he says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right. We have the perfect teacher. We need him to teach us the correct way of living. We need him to lord over us to ensure that we do what we're taught so that we can have the blessing that he wants us to have. Now, you see, there's no other teacher like Jesus. Other teachers may teach imperfectly. And when they've taught and, and when they do manage to teach the right thing, they think that relaying the information is their whole duty, so Miss Glenda, they're done. You know, anybody ever had a teacher like that where, you know, I had those in college where these guys were geniuses. They knew a whole lot about the topic, but they didn't really care if you got it or not. They thought their whole mission was to sta stand at that podium and just vomit out information correctly and then walk off. And if you failed, you failed. They didn't care. They'd done their job. Anybody else ever had a professor like that? Yes, we all have, unfortunately, if we've been in that situation. That's not the perfect teacher. That's a very imperfect teacher. They don't make their students practice mastery. Other teachers may lord over their students. They may actually invest time in their students and how their students act and what their students do in their practice, but they do so unfairly and harshly because they're not worried so much about, again, the welfare of their students. They're worried about what? They're worried about their feeling of superiority. They're worried about being the one in power. They're worried about being the one that's dominant within the whole exercise there. That teacher's not a good teacher either. In either case, these teachers are not motivated by love and concern for the pupil's best interest. And that's not the case with our teacher, Jesus. He teaches us all lessons for the same reason that he teaches this one that we're observing tonight. Uh, we see that reason in verse 1. If you're there in John 13, just look up to verse 1. It said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the word for end here means not he loved them until he died. I think a lot of us have read that verse, and I think I've heard people talk about that. They think that means that he loved them to the cross. You know, well, 
yes and no, that's not really what it means. The meaning of the word here means to the uttermost or to the maximum, to the fullest possible extent. Because he loved them to the max, yes, he went to the cross. Because he loved you and me to the max, yes, he went to the cross. But if we're going to talk about the love of Jesus here, what we've got to understand is that God is pointing out through John that the love that Christ has for his disciples both in that day and us now is the maximum level and extent and expression of love that can possibly exist. To put it bluntly, it is agape love. It is the love that God has. Sacrificial love where nothing is held back for the good of the other. That is the kind of love that Jesus has here when he said he loved his own who were in the world. Therefore, because he loves us with this purposeful love that is to the fullest extent expressed, therefore we can always trust what he teaches regardless of how much it challenges our own understanding or perceptions. I don't know how many of us have ever had a teacher in class that we just really felt like this guy or this lady really adores me and wants me to succeed in everything to do with this class and my life and whatever. If you've ever had a teacher or a coach like that, congratulations, that's great. I don't know that I had one just like that, but I know that I have one like that in Christ. And here's the thing, when you have a teacher like that, you can be joyful in his teaching regardless of what he calls you to do because you know that he always has your best interest in mind, right? We don't have to doubt why he's teaching what he's teaching. We don't have to doubt why he runs the class the way he runs the class, so to speak. We don't have to doubt when he disciplines, and we don't have to doubt when he tells us things that seem to blow our mind and we can't grasp on the first or the hundredth or the thousandth time. We can still trust and be joyful in just trusting. Why? Because we know that his love for us is beyond our understanding. So what lesson are we being taught here? Tonight, we're going to look at Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet. And of course, as most of us know, uh, this event occurred on the night of Jesus' arrest before he'd be unjustly tried and beaten and crucified and then obviously buried in a borrowed tomb. At this Passover meal, of course, Jesus takes the place of a servant and sets about the lowly job of washing the dirty feet of those whom are his followers. This, of course, flies in the face of my natural way of thinking and your natural way of thinking. Even if we've been in church our whole lives, this still flies in the face of our natural way of understanding things. The one who is superior does not serve. He's the one that served, right? Isn't that our natural understanding of things? The CEO of the company doesn't run and go get his secretary coffee. It's the other way around, isn't it? The important person doesn't do menial tasks for the not-so-important person. It's the lowly one that serves the greater. That's our natural, human, carnal, or let's say fallen and broken way of understanding things. Um, However, this is totally opposite, of course, from what Jesus had taught his disciples. In Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus tells his disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, up at this point on the night of the Passover feast, had already been teaching this lesson to his disciples for a while now. And right now in this instance, there's one final object lesson that he's going to kind of seal that teaching with here. He washes their feet to seal into their minds an understanding of what their lives and our lives should look like. Just in case they missed it. And as we'll talk, you'll see they obviously had missed it. And if I look at my life near about every day, obviously, though I think I understand it, I still miss it. Jesus gives an object lesson that would remain in their memories, burned in their understanding, so they would have an applicable way of understanding, oh, that's what my life should literally look like all the time. Now, he teaches this lesson in such a way so as to demonstrate the depths and the invasiveness into our lives, as well as to show the extent to which we must carry out this truth. And I use that word invasive because I think we all do this. I think, if you're like me, I think we can... How many of y'all have ever, uh, or you remember the first time you learned any truth from the Bible? Maybe it was in Sunday school, VBS, like you learned one truth. Okay, me and, me and Aubrey, the only ones that learned any truth. Everybody else is still waiting for their first try. That's okay. Um, what Tony said would be a great place to start. Don't go to hell. That's a great place to start. Hell bad. Jesus good. That's a great place to start. But, you know, if you're like me, I remember... I remember so many times I've, I've had people teach me or I've studied myself and I, I learned a basic truth from the Bible and I thought at that moment I pretty well had that figured out. But then have you ever had that moment where all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I understand what the Bible's saying, I just don't really have a clue how to work that out in my life day in and day out. You understand what I mean? Like. You could read this the first time and think, okay, if I went back in time to first century Judea and I got dropped off on this night of the Passover feast and I happened to be in a room full of dudes with some dirty, stinking, nasty, toe-jammy feet, I would get that I could take off my outer garment, wrap a tile around me and wash feet and that's what it's supposed to look like. But what does that look like for Brian Means and Mize right now in the year 2018? What does that mean for Glenda Gunner and Mize in 2018? What does that mean for all of us here in our life, day in and day out? Where sometimes we have days where we see big opportunities to do these kind of things, and Emily, most days we seem like we have nothing but little bitty, you know what I mean, like little bitty instances that kind of build up our day and nothing really big seems to stand out. How do we live this out? This is why we need this truth to invade us so that we see how to apply it every single moment of every single day. And he does this through a few different demonstrations that when you put them together, they all align to make this one act of washing of the disciples' feet. So first of all, we see in verse 4, if you want to look there, that it says, Jesus rose from supper. Now, Obviously, this means that serving others will often, if not always, be inconvenient. Now, I'm going to get off my notes here for just a second and probably get lost, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Chris, you ever had that day where you go and you work your tail off all day long at work? 
and you put up with all sorts of junk, everything that can go wrong goes wrong, you work hard, you come home, there's not a dry thread on you, you get home and then you know you got to do some chores at the house, you got to help get the kids situated, you maybe have to help cook supper or whatever it is and you get everybody else situated, you've been you know, busting your tail all day at work, you finally get home, you're wore out, you get everybody else situated, and finally you get, you know, your ham sandwich or whatever it is you've been waiting all day to get to, and you finally sit in your recliner, kick one shoe off. You know that feeling when you recline up and your feet come up and your feet throb because they ache? so much because you've been on them all day and you got that moment you're just about to take the first drink of sweet tea or whatever and what happens dad can you go get me right or as mike would say right you know y'all know what i'm talking about how aggravating how inconvenient is that moment right there if you were ever going to lash out and be like, no, I can't do it yourself or just starve. I, you know, whenever you know, that, that's in there, you don't, you know, none of you really holy people in front of me, I know would ever think that, but, you know, it's in there. Yes, that is inconvenient and it's aggravating. However, when John writes that Jesus rose from supper, and look, being, being a servant to people is often going to feel like that. It's been my experience, Stephen, that when people need my help the most, most of the time, it's not between the hours of four and six. Right? I get those phone calls at two o'clock in the morning. Somebody's going through, and I want you to, please call me, text me, whatever. I leave my phone, I never turn it off for that purpose. Please do. But, you know, tragedy never strikes at a convenient time, does it? You've been, Joe, when you're on a road trip, diarrhea never hits when there's a gas station right there, does it? You know why? Because everybody ain't able, Joe. Everybody ain't able. That's right. Lucas, you may want to edit that out on the band right there. <laughs> That's deep theology right there. But, you know, it's not convenient whenever bad things happen and people need us to help them. I get that. That's true. But when it says that Jesus rose up from supper, he's, John's saying way more about this situation than just Jesus finally got sat down and then look what happened. Dirty feet. Golly. That's not what he's saying. You see, what is more inconvenient than leaving your recliner that you have hoped to get to all day is to leave your position that you have worked to get to your whole life. That's more inconvenient. Jesus was not just sitting at a place at the table. He was sitting, no doubt, at the highest seat. And if any of you remember, we've talked about the high, taking the lowest seat and the highest seat, places of honor in the Jewish system uh, at, at different gatherings. Um, Jesus, like I said, wasn't sitting at just any seat. He was sitting at the highest seat. We know this because he was uh, the most revered in the room. Again, in verse 13, we see that his disciples called him Lord. John didn't call Peter Lord. Peter didn't call, you know, Andrew Lord. Nobody called anybody Lord except for they called Jesus Lord. He's the most revered in the room. So obviously, he would, according to Jewish custom, be seated at the head of the table, the place of total prestige. It meant that he was undeniably the most prominent member of the gathering. The first thing that Jesus did when he set out to wash his disciples' feet was to surrender that place. We can't miss that. The first thing he had to do to become a servant was surrender that place of prestige. We're called to do the same. Often serving others means that we have to give up 
or put aside our position. I think a great example would be our culture's understanding of what it means to be the man of the house. You know, in our, in our uh, married couples class, we talked about this a lot. You know, I know growing up, I've unfortunately even heard it preached from pulpits that this whole idea of the man is the king of his castle, right? Anybody else ever heard that before? It's the idea that, you know, whatever dad wants, you know, dad goes and works or whatever, and whether mom has a job or not, that seems to kind of get brushed under the rug there. Dad comes home, what are you going to eat for supper? Whatever dad wants. What are you going to watch on TV? Whatever dad wants. What are you going to do for vacation? Whatever dad wants. What's it about? It's what dad wants, right? Because he's the king of his castle. Biblical garbage. And I hope I don't offend you, but that is satanic. Because that totally obliterates the entire Bible's teaching about what it means to love your wife as Christ loves the church. To be a leader in your home means that you have to be the servant leader. That means that you lay your life down for your wife and children. That means that you lead by humbling yourself and serving and meeting the needs of everyone else in the house before yourself. Buddy, if, if, there's, if you've got four people in your household, two kids, you and Mama Sam, there's only three meals. Who's not going to eat? You. And that's true. I know. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I know, buddy. That's true, ain't it, Katie? That's right. Me and Katie are imports into the, the Easterland household. We know it's true. Buddy would do it. I'm not, I'm not sitting here to, to, to elevate Buddy, but I mean, he would do it in a heartbeat. Probably has. Okay? Um, that's what it means to be a servant leader of your household. That's what it means to be the king of your castle in Jesus' way of looking at it. That's not the way our world paints it, is it? That's not the way our world paints it at all. But our world, like I said, promotes biblical balderdash. In Christ's economy, like we said, being the head or being the greatest also means you have to be the servant of all. Jesus' example calls us to voluntarily place ourselves beneath others in order to serve them. Secondly, this reveals that Jesus had a continual mindset for service. Now I want you to imagine, how many of y'all ever been to a party? Okay, the rest of y'all are really, y'all need a life, guys. Y'all need to go to church or go to a party. One or the other. I've never learned anything in church. I've never been to a party. I'll tell you what. Man, let's get... Get Rudy back in here. He's done all that stuff. <laughs> Imagine that you were there at this party. What are you focusing on when you're at the party? Well, at a party, there's a lot going on, right? You're eating food. There's entertainment of some kind. There's, there's conversation going on. Maybe there's music in the background, whatever. You're focusing on what's going on around you, right? That's why you went. Most people don't go to a party to sit there and contemplate the question, why? Right? that's a deep question. It takes a lot of thought. You go to a party just to relax, don't you? To have fun, to laugh, make fun of Kyle. That's what I do. So, he's not even in here, but, but in spirit, he's here. Uh, in the midst of this party, where I'm sure there was a lot of things going on, there was talking, there was eating, various types of entertainment going on. In the midst of this, when everyone else's mind was on the feast, Jesus' mind was set on servanthood and teaching. It's obvious that his disciples' feet needed to be washed still. How do we know that? Because he washed them. They obviously were still dirty. This means that even though Jesus had before taught them 
about the value of preferring others above themselves and taking the lower seat, all of them to, a, to the man had failed to walk in, see this golden opportunity to be the chief servant in this group of Christ followers and wash their fellow disciples' feet. All of them had failed to do this. Now, there's a reason that they had failed to do this, and it's something we have to be really careful about. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 22, Luke lets us know what everybody's attitude was at this party. In verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They were all going to the Passover feast fighting over who was going to get to sit closest to Jesus. Who would be the greatest? It's really hard to see opportunities to serve other people when you're always concentrating on, but what about me? What about what people think about me? What about me getting mine? It's impossible. You can't do both at the same time. How do I know? Because that's where I fail maybe the most. Always looking, thinking about myself. Selfishness chokes out the spiritual life of Christ's disciples. And it was the same with these guys here. Rather than being caught up in the festivities or speaking up to remind his disciples that he was the greatest, which he was and still is, instead Jesus silently proved that he is the greatest by doing the lowly degrading job that their pride had prevented them from doing. We should watch ourselves and make sure we don't fall into that trap too. Thirdly, in verse 4, we read that he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Jesus didn't simply grab a towel and wash their feet. I want you to get that. You know, it isn't that he just said, oh, well, let me get that. And he grabbed a towel and just did a job. This says way more than that. What it means is that instead of just serving, he became a servant. Instead of just washing their feet, he became a foot washer. Do you understand the difference? It would be like this. If you and I were at a large banquet and uh, I was given a place of prestige, seated at the head table up on the stage, and everybody in this banquet, this is a black tie affair, everybody's wearing a tuxedo or a nice evening gown or whatever, uh, and this is a real kind of high-class thing, as me and Katie would say, bougie, you know? It's a high-caliber kind of event. Um, it would be one thing if in the middle of it, let's say one of my best friends, Kyle McGee, is sitting right there, and he needed some water. He said, hey, y'all got some water? And I said, here, Kyle, let me serve you. And I grabbed the pitcher and walked, still in my tux, still the man of the hour, the guy being on honored here at the head of the table and I go pour him a glass of water and then sit back down in my seat, that's one thing. It's a totally different thing if while everybody's coming in and everybody's getting seated and everybody's kind of getting their spot, I quietly, without saying a word, just got up, went behind the curtain without making any racket about it, went back to the kitchen, took off my tuxedo, put on a, one of those waiter outfits that they have in these really nice places, and I just went around quietly and under the surface just started serving everybody out there. That's totally different, isn't it? In the first instance, I served somebody. In the second instance, I gave up everything to become a servant. That's what Jesus did. The reason John writes this, the detail that he wrote it, he's pointing out Jesus became something here. He became a servant. Um, he took off his garment, which would have gotten in the way of his washing, and dressed only now in his linen undergarment, he tied a towel around him. That was the common look or the common garb of a household servant at that point in time. 
Jesus put on a butler's uniform, so to speak. Then he set out to serve. How many times have we failed to serve because we thought ourselves above it? How many bosses do not serve their employees because it means taking off their boss hat for just a minute and becoming a servant to those that they normally give orders to? I've even seen pastors who would not do anything but preach and administer in the church office because they thought it was beneath them. That's terrible. In this lesson, Jesus is teaching us that we should be looking for opportunities to step down and not just serve, but prove that we really are just servants. We should be looking for those opportunities. That's a totally different mindset than we were born with. Right? That's probably a totally different mindset than we can honestly say we walk around with all the time. Unless we intentionally focus on it, we won't do this. And that's why Christ teaches us such a pointed lesson about it because he wants us to constantly be thinking about it because this honors him. Lastly, Jesus committed this act in the face of what he knew to be true about himself. We at our fallen, excuse me, we out of our fallen nature resist being servants. Why? Why is it we resist serving other people? Ah, there you go. It makes us, because we're really scared that we really aren't as good as somebody else, right? If we have a little bit of position, we guard it with our life because in deep down we're really insecure and we think maybe we're not as good as other people. Or we don't want others to think that we're not as good or better than everybody else. Really what it is, it's self-idolatry is what it is. We want ourselves to be worshipped and have a certain level of prestige. And somewhere deep down in our broken nature, in a way that maybe we can't always put into words, there's a sense in there that if we ever lose that, then what we feared the most is true. We really are worthless. Or we're not as good as somebody else. That's really the human situation. We resist being servants because we want to be superior when we are really not. Or maybe you've served someone and then felt that your obligation had been met. Anybody ever had that happen? Maybe you did something for somebody else and you thought you'd done enough. They shouldn't ask you to do any more. Probably so. Um, it's easy to do something or many things for someone and then say to ourselves that we've done enough or that it's time... Uh, it's... It's time for uh, the other person to return the favor. You know, um, in a marriage, maybe, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, please don't, because then we'll have counseling afterwards we've got to do. But in a marriage, uh, you know, if one person does two or three things for the other, let's say Joe goes home and he washes dishes and cooks supper and washes the dog and, you know, vacuums the floor all in the same night or something like that. Well then, <laughs> right. Well then, Jane. Then Jane may have something she really needs him to help with, and Joe may very well, in his brokenness, sit there. He may do it, but he's still got the attitude of, "I've done all this. I think it's about time you do something for a change." How about that? Anybody ever had that feeling? Yes. If you've got kids, of course, yes. Right? If you've ever been a kid, yes. You do one thing for your parents, you forget the million things they do for you. I picked up that shoe without you asking me to deserve a car, right? <laughs> it was the opposite with Jesus. 
Just before telling us that Jesus rose from supper to wash the feet, John writes in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. See, at this point, John makes a point to let us know that Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was the Messiah who had come to give his life for his people and then return to God to be exalted and glorified. How easy would it have been for Jesus to say to himself, okay, I've come to die for these guys. That's about enough. They can wash their own feet. That would almost be logical, wouldn't it? Jesus came to die. Peter can wash his own toes, right? Now, we're all giggling because that seems like what he should have said in our mind, isn't it? Like, if it wasn't Jesus that did it, and if it wasn't written in the Bible, we would all sit here and say, yeah, what Brian just said sounds better than that first thing. Yeah, Peter washed his own feet, right? That makes sense to us, not to Christ. That is Christ. However, it was at this moment when Jesus is in full understanding of who he is, what he has to do, where he came from, where he would return to, and what he was about to endure, that he chooses to serve again by lowering himself again to the place of serving those who are totally beneath and dependent upon him. That is different than anybody else that's ever walked the planet. And all of this comes together to constitute the one act of service, the washing of the disciples' feet. And after he finished, we read in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. See, he did this. This was not because he valued the vestige of the teacher or the seat of honor. Obviously, he didn't because his disposition was to surrender them in order to serve. He's already proven he doesn't care if he's wearing a rabbi's robe or not. He doesn't care if he's sitting in the highest place. The only thing he cared about was what? Doing the will of his Father. The only thing he cared about was serving because that's what he came to do. He came not to be served but to serve, right? That's all he cared about. So why does he even get up and put his teacher robe back on? Why didn't he put his outer garment back on? Why didn't he take the highest seat again? Why didn't he just, why didn't he do us a, 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 another object lesson right there and then maybe put his outer garment back on but then go and sit in the lowest seat? Why didn't he do that? Because again, he wanted to serve. It's just that this time he was going to serve in the way that the disciples needed him to still serve. He needed them to wash those feet because he needed, they needed him. Excuse me. They needed him to wash their feet because they needed him to give them that object lesson in the face of them bickering about who was the greatest. They needed him to show, no, this is the greatest. The one, if, you, if, you want, if you really were the greatest, you'd already wash these feet and, I, and nobody else would be worried about it. But I'm the greatest, therefore I wash the feet. Now they need him to stand up and become the teacher again. They need him to explain teachers in here, you do an experiment in class, you work a problem, something like that, and then often you have to do what? Right after you do it, they automatically get it perfectly, right? No, you got to go back and do what? You got to explain it. You got to say, now look, this is what we just did. This is really what just happened at least three times. That's just the first day, right? You have to explain it. They needed him to serve as a teacher again. So he put on the teacher garment. They needed him to be their Lord. He sat in the high seat. And what did he say? In verse 12, Do you understand 
what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, Jesus' end goal here, again, is to serve us by leading us, shepherding us to a point of being blessed. If we live our lives the way we, we are hardwired by nature to live them, where we worry about ourselves and we want others, we really secretly want others to serve us even though we may not put it in those words. We're going to miss out on being fulfilled and being blessed and being happy and being joyful. And Christ knows that. That's why he said, if you understand what I just did and what I just said and you do the same thing, you'll be blessed. Our job is to hear and respond. Of course, the whole scene is symbolic of Christ's kenosis. It's a theological term. It means his self-robbery. Um, Paul ties this to our attitude and actions in Philippians 2 when he writes in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our call. We've got to shed ourselves of all selfish ambition and conceited pride so that we'll be able to walk in humility. Now, can we do that? If you're born again in here tonight, yes, you can do that. Why? Because you've now got willpower to do it? No, not really. It's what Paul wrote. Have this mind in yourself. What kind of mind? The mind where I can do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but I consider other people as more important than myself. Does that mean Joseph is really more important than me? Well, of course he's Joseph, but does that mean Joseph is really more important than anybody else? No, that just means that I'm supposed to look at it that way. That doesn't mean he is, that just means I'm supposed to live that way. Does that mean that anybody here is more important than me? Not really, that just means I'm supposed to live like all of you are. And you're supposed to live like everybody around you is more important than you. Husbands are supposed to live like their wives are more important than them. That's heaven's queen that you as a lowly slave have been commissioned to care for for entire life until God parts you by death. Wives are supposed to see their husband as a prince of heaven, a high priest or a priest under the high priest Christ, and they care for him and help him be successful in his ministry, his calling, until Christ parts them by death. We're supposed to view each other as more important than ourselves to the point that we love each other the way Christ has loved us and gave himself for us. We're supposed to do that. How can we do that? Because we have this mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. Because we are filled with the very spirit of our master and our Lord Jesus. We can start thinking this way. Does that mean it happens just overnight like that? Absolutely not. Why do we all still come to church, Brendy? 
Why do we preach to saved people? Because if we don't, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them, making disciples, right? Baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them, making disciples, and doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. If we don't continue to teach all that Christ commanded to people who are now disciples, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. That's just as important and just as needed and just as necessary for the building of the kingdom and the fulfillment of the Great Commission as going to Emily, India and telling somebody that would have never heard if you hadn't gone. Just as important. That's why when we go when we go places, we need to make it our goal to see leaders raised up so they can continue the work when we can't be there. Because we don't live there. We live here. We build each other up. And churches planted all over the world build each other up doing what Jesus told us to do. We can do this because it's ours in Christ Jesus to do it. How do we do it? Well, one step is we do what we're doing right now. We all come and we give ourselves not to what I'm saying. I'm an idiot. We're doing this by giving ourselves to what Christ said and what Christ taught and what the Holy Spirit still teaches us to do and what He still disciplines us to do and pushes us to do. We do this and we we have to put away all selfish ambition and conceited pride so that we can walk freely in humility. Only then can we count others as more important than ourselves. Only then can we look for opportunities to intentionally lower ourselves into the place of service for others. Only then can we be Christ-like and only then can we really say that we are blessed. Amen? Let's make this an intentional pursuit. Because Christ's goal is that we would know Him in this way, by emulating Him, imitating Him, that we would be blessed in that. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I praise you, God. I just ask that uh, you were glorified in what we said and did tonight, Lord God. I just want to thank you so much for your word. Lord Jesus, I just really appreciate you um, setting me and so many of us, Lord, free from the slavery to iniquity because there were things that we probably all knew we shouldn't do and we couldn't help ourselves. And there were things that we knew we should do and we couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Um, But when you set us free, it was a game changer, Lord. We became your servants and servants to righteousness. And I just want to thank you for being the teacher and the Lord that you are. Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom. Thank you for teaching us these things, God, because I I know, Lord, this is something, what we talk about tonight is something I would never figure out. I just know myself. I would go the exact opposite way for the rest of my life except for the fact that you tell us the right way to to go. Lord, please lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us be a people who know who we are in Christ and we're free to look intentionally for opportunities to lower ourselves and be like you. Just become a servant to people and love people and trust that you will reward that in the end. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And I pray blessing over every person here, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen.